perhaps more than any of Paul's other epistles, um, the book of Galatians has basically one subject, one, one topic. His other books are varied in their subjects. You know, he may establish a doctrinal truth, and then often uh, he'll, he'll give, uh, you know, building on that foundation, he'll give many other lessons and with manifold different applications. But the book of Galatians is pretty much one, one note, one beat through the entire score. And, um, you know, with that I, I debated about maybe fast-forwarding or picking up the tempo uh, so as to, because you know, when when you when you hear one repetitive tone, uh, it might seem monotonous. Um, but I hope it does, I hope this study has not become that, um, because it really is such a lovely tune that it should not be monotonous in our heart. Uh, my prayer is that it would become more like you know that song that gets stuck in your head and is in the background of all your thoughts. But it's a lovely tune. And that for that reason, you, you can't get it out of your mind. And, I, and I'd like to, I, my prayer is that this study of Galatians has become that for us. But we do come, and so I, I consider just jumping up into chapter 5, but actually uh, this portion of chapter 4 I find is so intriguing, it's fascinating, because uh, Paul does something here that... Um, he seldom does. He he uses a, what I would call maybe a, an object lesson, um, and you know who doesn't love a, an object lesson, right? So uh, you know Jesus was the master at that. He he would tell parables and and these sort of things and and uh, captivate uh, people's imaginations and hearts and and drive home a lesson. And that's what Paul is doing here. Is um, he is using an Old Testament story? to convey to us this New Testament truth. And I find it quite interesting. And, and because it also it takes a little bit of, uh, you know, maybe slow down, think about this. You've got to sort of not um, place your thinking cap next to you. You have to keep it on as we go through this because um, it, it, you have to follow to really understand what he's saying. But, it, but once, you, once you begin to pick up the keys... Uh, it's really not difficult at all uh, to do that. So, basically, starting at verse 21, he sets the scene with this statement. He says, Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law. So he's talking to, as we've seen all along, he's talking to these Galatians who um, are wanting to go back under the law. But he basically says to them, But you don't even understand what the law says. Uh, you don't even know what it says, if, and if you know what it says, you don't really, you haven't grasped the um, the implications of the law, or else you wouldn't want to go back under it. You know, as, that's what he's been getting at really all along. Uh, if you look back just for a moment at, at chapter three and verse number ten, I'll remind you that it says here that for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. You wouldn't want to be under a curse, would you? But those that are under the work of the law are under a curse. Why? For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law 
to do them. Now, those who were in Sunday school, uh, you have a little bit of an advantage. There's a few things I thought of when we went when we uh, listened to the Sunday school lesson that apply to this. And one of those things is that the one of the points of the Sunday school lesson was that we are to follow God's uh, follow God's rules, His leading, you know, very carefully. How did it say it, Rick? I'm not Sorry. saying it. Precisely. That's, that's a good word. Um, so we're to follow God's instructions precisely. And when it comes to the, you know, if you want to try to gain salvation by keeping the law, the problem with that is you have to keep it flawlessly. You know, law is, there's no grace in law. You don't, you don't get to any, you know, do-overs. Uh, you have to do it perfectly, and that's where we all fail. Because none of us keep God's laws flawlessly, perfectly, uh, throughout all of our lives. Really, we can't do it for a day, barely. But, uh, you know, so he says, you know, cursed is everyone that's under the law, because it's written, you have to continue in all things that are written in it. And then he says in verse 11, by that no uh, man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident. It's obvious. For the just shall live by faith. So he's talking to these Gentile uh, believers who are being persuaded to go uh, to take on the law to you know become what well, this term we've used legalists. Now I have been accused at times of being a legalist, and really it's only because um, you know I've always taught believers that we should hold to a high moral standard. Uh, which is taught in the Bible, you know, that we, we're, we need to live a life that reflects the glory of God, the grace of God, and, and a life that, you know, how, what shall we say? And as we learn in Romans 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Uh, obviously, we're to live clean lives as Christians, right? Um, you know, we are to abstain from... Uh, Unholy things. Avoid lying. I made a little list. Uh, you know, avoid lying. Well, that's something we ought to all try to do. Uh, we should not be false witnesses. We shouldn't be uh, telling what we used to call as kids fibs. Uh, but you know, telling lies. Um, that's that's a that's a standard because it's a sin to lie. Um, another one I wrote down is. Um, you know, to be faithful in marriage. Every married Christian, it is our goal to be faithful. It's our desire by the grace of God to uh, be faithful to our spouse. Not to, um, you know, obviously it would be wrong to have uh, commit adultery and other things. To, and then even um, further to abstain, even those that aren't married, from fornication and other things, uncleanness, the Bible talks about, to avoid profanity and drinking, alcohol, and uh, getting involved in addictive practices like drugs and gambling and, and so on, to eschew forms of entertainment that tempt us to uh, unholiness, wicked behavior. So these are ideals that we, by the grace of God, try to live by. That's not legalism. 
Now, it would be legalism if I was to tell you that you have to do those things in order to go to heaven. That would be legalism. Then I would be a false teacher. But to preach that once you are saved by the grace of God, by putting faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're to live that way, that's not legalism. You know, the fact is, um, there are people who live around us that perhaps have kept that entire list that I uh, just, you know, give, just delineated there, and yet, because they have never received Christ as their Savior, will not go to heaven. And there are some of us in this room that have uh, broken those rules, but by faith in Christ, we have been saved and we will go to heaven. So, you know, that's what legalism... Legalism is the idea of um, believing that you can be saved by keeping those things, but that's not the case. Jesus said in Matthew 21, uh, He said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you that the publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. He's talking to the, to the uh, Pharisees. Didn't mean that, you know, you can just live like a publican or a harlot and, you know, sin in, in throughout your life and, um, you know, that that's okay. It just means that uh, all of us are guilty of sin and we need to receive Christ as our Savior. Are you with me still? Alright. So, I just wanted to kind of make sure we understand that term legalism. Um, I wrote down legalism would be me telling you that you must hold these things in order to go to heaven or in order to keep your salvation. But we are saved by faith in Christ. Now as we know the Galatians were being persuaded to uh, change their doctrine from preaching the gospel of salvation by faith to preaching salvation by works. And some churches do change their doctrine. Uh, I grew up in a church that used to preach uh, salvation. When I say grow up, I mean in my childhood years. Um, I was raised in a church that at one time preached the gospel quite plainly and boldly. But now, today, uh, you could sit in one of those churches for uh, months and months and months on end, maybe even years, and never even really understand what the gospel is. Because they don't make it clear. And they preach a lot of other things and, and social values and all of these sort of things, but they, they, they make you think that if you live social values, you baptize, you do some things, that, that, that should cut it, you know, that should get you there. Um, but that's, that's not the gospel. And so Paul is beating the same drama over and over again because he's wanting them to realize that, hey, you cannot change the message. If you do, you become uh, what, I, what I said before. Uh, you know, if any man preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. And so Paul is making this point over and over again that salvation is by faith. Now, he says, you, back in verse 21, or, yeah, 21, uh, you that desire to be under the law, do you know what the law says? Are you listening to the law? Have you heard it? And when he talks about the law, of course, we, our mind goes immediately to, like, the Ten Commandments, right? Or, uh, these thou shalt and thou shalt not. 
But really, the, the Jews often referred to the, the first five books of the Old Testament as the law. Sometimes they would generically refer to the whole Old Testament as the law and the prophets, you know. But Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy make up that Pentateuch, that law, and in that it tells us about Abraham. And we've, we've looked at Abraham and what he can teach us even before in this book, but uh, here he says, you know, you want to be under the law, you want to be under that Old Testament stuff, uh, have you really thought about Abraham? And of course they had, now uh, the Jews especially, the Judaizers, they were very, very, very uh, keen on their heritage, their lineage, being able to trace it back to Abraham. That was very much a, a matter of pride, it was a matter of confidence to the Jews. The fact that they were the children of Abraham. We, we see that, I'll just give you a little taste of that maybe. Uh, I just read this this week in my reading. Go back to Luke. I think it's chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. I was reading this in my devotions. And uh, when John the Baptist was preaching, lots of people came out to, to his baptisms and heard the message, and so much that it kind of piqued the interest of the Pharisees, the religious rulers, and so they would go out as well. And he says down, look at verse number 7, it says, this is John the Baptist, Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. That's kind of an interesting way to go about it, isn't it? You know, here's these people showing up to your baptism, and you, and you say, uh, Oh, you generation of vipers, you bunch of snakes. You know? But he, he says to them in verse 8, Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. And begin, now here, listen to this. He says, And begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Go to John chapter 8. So, what is... What was John the Baptist getting at there? What he was driving at is that the Jews basically thought that, you know, hey, we are the children of Abraham. God made this covenant with Abraham, and so we're all in that, you know. And he says, don't, don't just say you are children of Abraham like that settles it. Because it has nothing to do with your physical lineage to the Abraham. There needs to be a spiritual lineage Lineage. Remember how we saw this earlier in Galatians a couple of weeks back where uh, Abraham was kind of called the father of faith in the Bible. And he says, you know, if you are of the same faith that Abraham had, then you are children of Abraham. That's why even the Gentiles can say, uh, Father Abraham had many sons and I'm one of them and so are you. Because, you know, we are of that faith of, it, of Abraham. But anyway, in John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus deals with the same thing. It says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Not all people who claim faith continue. And he says, Ye, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now they kind of took a little offense at that statement. 
Because they say in verse number 33, they answered him, we be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? You know, I remember when I first read that many years ago. Well, maybe not first read it, but I remember reading it and thinking to myself, that's almost laughable. Like they said, uh, you know, how do you say you need to be made free? We've always been free. And I thought to myself, really? Are you, are you not under the Romans right now? I mean, are you free right now? The Jews were hardly ever free as far as like they kept going back into bondage all the time. We were studying judges on, Sunday, on uh, Thursday nights. And we see them all the time getting in bondage because of their sin. But they were blinded. Anyway, so they said, we're Abraham's seed. We were never in bondage. And Jesus says in verse 34, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. You're not free, you're serving sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my, uh, because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. <laughs> and again they're saying, what are you talking about? Verse 39, they said unto him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said unto them, if, he, if ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. Then uh, said they unto him, We be not born of fornication, we have one father, even God. And Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye uh, not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? So this was the problem many times. Uh, they, they just kept leaning on their heritage. Oh, we, we're from Abraham. We're the children of Abraham. You know, a lot of people do that. Um, you know, my parents were Christians, my grandfather was a preacher, and, and so they just think for somehow, you know, it's like through osmosis, it passes down to them. But, but it's not true. Every one of us has to have faith for ourselves. You know, my, my mother is a godly believer, but that doesn't automatically make her children, a, you know, Christians. We have to receive Christ for ourselves. And sometimes I think maybe, you know, well, we grow up in church and we know so much about the Bible and uh, all the stories. You know, you could, you could quote some memory verses. You could name uh, the Bible books in order and all those things. So I must be a Christian. But that's not what makes somebody a Christian. Uh, having a knowledge of the things of God is a great thing. And we should be thankful for that. But not until we put faith in Christ are we saved. But they, you know, they were talking about Abraham. And so when they came to the Gentiles, you know, part of that covenant that God made with Abraham included circumcision. 
that's where that began. And so they, the Jews were telling the Gentiles, if you want to become, you know, if you want to be saved, if you want to get in line with us, you have to be circumcised and you have to keep all these things of the Old Testament. And Paul says uh, to them, you know, you that want to be under the law, don't you know what the law says? The law tells, you know, the books of the Old Testament tell us that Abraham had not one son, but actually two sons. Look, look back in uh, Galatians 4 now in verse uh, 22. It's written, Abraham had two sons. The one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. So, you know, don't just worry about whether you are a child of Abraham. You know, Abraham might be your father, but which one's your mother? <laughs> are you a child of the, of the bondwoman or a child of the free woman? Now, who's he talking about here? Well, if you know the story, and I imagine many, most of all of you do, if you don't, I'll have to give you homework. You have to go back and read it in Genesis. But, and maybe you should do that anyway, but for right now, just, just follow with me. So Abraham and his wife, what was her name? Sarah, that's right. Abraham and Sarah came out of Ur in the east, the Chaldean land, and they came to uh, this promised land, and God promised them that he would give them a son. Now, when that promise came, Abraham was 75 years old. And it was not that they did not want children. They, they did, but uh, were unable up to this point to have any children. But God said, I'm going to give you a son. Well, 10 years go by, Abraham's now 85. And at 85, after 10 years, now... I kind of want to say you can't really blame them, but we can because they shouldn't have done this. It was wrong. You know, sometimes, you know, we, like I, I've always said, and I know you know this, is that God gives us promises to believe, and some of them, you know, we still haven't received all of it, right? I mean, we're looking forward to things. There's much more to come, and it's been a long time we've been on this road. But we must never lose sight of those promises and, and begin to doubt them. But that's what happened to Abraham and Sarah. They began to say, look, you know, years are ticking. I mean, if you're talking about the biological clock, it's, gotten, it's, it's gone. We're, we're into our elderly years. And, um, you know, I don't know about this promise, but we've got to do something about this. So Sarah actually... Um, not only gave permission, but kind of, kind of urged Abraham to take her bond servant, her handmaid, Hagar, and to have a son by her. And that's what happens. And now, do you know what that boy's name was? Ishmael, that's right, Ishmael. Was Abraham's really firstborn, if you will. We are talking about the firstborn in Sunday school. But born not... Uh, and what he says here, let, let's, let's read this. Um, where is it? There's a particular thing I want to point out. So, uh, verse 22, uh, Abraham had two sons, one by a, bond woman, a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. The free woman is Sarah. But he also, he who was of the bondwoman, was born after the flesh. Now here's a distinction. So there's a distinction between these two sons. One distinction is 
One had the, their mother was the bond servant, the other was the free woman. One is born after the flesh, one is born after promise. What does that mean? Well, it means that uh, Ishmael was born after just simply the, the natural process of, uh, of procreation. You know, it was just a natural birth. Nothing supernatural about it. Nothing, uh, you know, unusual about it. He was just born uh, by this relation between Abraham and Hagar. But the, the, the next son, who's born like 13 years later, when Abraham's 100 years old, was born, you say, well, wasn't that by natural process? Uh, well, in a way, but yet, no. Right? Because it was supernatural. And that's why God, you know, just like we were talking about in Sunday school, why the Lord uh, hardened the heart of Pharaoh and, and waited all those that time to bring Egypt out, or Israel out of Egypt, was because, uh, you know, he wanted to, it was very clear, it was no doubt, uh, this was God's doing. You know, when, when they came out. And when Abraham and Sarah had their son, there was no question mark in anybody's mind that this was supernatural. Uh, listen to what it says in um, Hebrews 11. Through faith, also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she had judged him faithful who had promised now, even though their faith had wavered back, you know, when Ishmael was born, they were still believers and they believed. And it says, therefore sprang there even one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude. So God waited, in other words, till uh, Sarah was well past age. And, I mean, she's now 90 years old and, and she's been barren the whole time, Right? And she was not able to have children when she was 20, let alone 90. And Abraham, you know, was good as dead. He was 100 years old. Not a lot of fathers, you know, of newborns that are 100 years old. And so the, the, the obvious thing here is this was the promise God had made. This was the supernatural. This was, this was a birth uh, that was in spite of, of nature. And it... it it's the, the picture he's, he's giving here. I had a little slide, and I was going to get camera to try it. Whenever we try these things, we fail the first time. But uh, I printed out just a little chart, um, whatever you call this, with these columns, just to kind of help us a little bit with this. I, I saw a couple different ones of these in the, in the commentaries. But on the one hand, you have Hagar. Okay, Hagar's the bondwoman. And her son Ishmael, and under that you can put slavery, birth by process. Did it work? Good. All right. Um, covenant based on law, and what's the next one? Earthly Jerusalem and Judaism. Now, I might be a little early because as we walk through here, you'll, you'll see where all those things fit. On the other side, we have Isaac, or well, Sarah, Sarah's son Isaac. She was free, birthed by promise, covenant based on promise, heavenly Jerusalem, and Christianity. 
that's that's kind of what we see in this picture that Paul this this object lesson that Paul gives us. So Paul's talking about these two sons of Abraham for a reason. The reason he's bringing it up is because he says this is a picture of salvation. It's an allegory, he calls it. Now, um, I don't want to take a long time, but, but when, you, when you see that word allegory, uh, it can be misleading a little bit because there are people who interpret the Bible allegorically. What that means is that they, they take the stories of the Bible and they say, they're not really literal people and literal things, but they're just like, you know, like Aesop's fables. They, they're fictitious characters that teach us some moral lesson. Now that's not true. All of the record of the Bible is historically, and, well, it's, it's true. These events actually happened. You know, Jonah literally did get swallowed by a whale. Adam and Eve were literally two people. On, I mean, you know, were real people. The first people God created on the earth. Some people take that story as an allegory. And you know, one of the things that Christianity has done in the last couple of decades is that, you know, I remember when I went to Bible college, I remember learning about this allegorical interpretation and these kind of things. And I remember, I remember the teachers teaching us, and they would say things about uh, a lot. We learned lots and lots of different stuff. But one of the things was they said, you know, Catholicism would go into countries and they would take uh, a lot of the parts of the religious of religions of the country. In other words, the people's superstitions and their their uh, you know, I don't know. I want to say voodoo and all these kinds of... But, you know, they had these false gods and so on. And they would sort of incorporate them into Catholicism so that they could make it more palatable to people. Now, obviously, that's not, that's not right. But sometimes, I think even Christians, you know, we, we get... Today, we're bombarded with the idea that science proves that we evolved. That science does not prove that we evolved. But Christianity wants to come up with, you know, somehow we'll incorporate some theistic evolution into the Bible. And we don't need to do that. When we do that, we're, we're getting off the mark. We're in error. You can believe, literally, God created the, the world and the universe in six days, 24-hour days. Because He did. I talked to... And one of the reasons why I even think about that is I talked to a, another pastor in our city. I won't name the church, but a, you know, an evangelical church in our town. And he told me, he said, me and one other man in our church are the only ones that believe in six-day creation. And I thought, isn't that sad? <clears throat> so many people have abandoned the Bible <clears throat> and incorporated the philosophies of the world. But we don't want to do that. So this story about uh, Sarah and Hagar is a literal, true account of what happened. But it does give us a picture. It does give us a, an object lesson. It does teach us something about salvation. And that's what Paul is dealing with. He says that, um, you know, the Hagar, her 
child, Ishmael, is born to a slave, and there's bondage shown there, and it was out of really rebellion and rejection of the promise. A disbelief in the promise, trying to help God out. You know, Sarah essentially saying, you know, God hasn't done this, and I think he needs a little help, Abraham. We're going to have to do something. And, you know, a lot of people, when, when it comes to salvation, they say, well, we believe in God, and we believe that Jesus died, but, but we've got to do something. We've got to help him out. We have to keep some things to get to heaven. And so they put themselves under the law. Which is, you know, there's no, there's no mixing. You can't mix. Salvation is either by faith, period, or it's by works. You can't muddy the two together. And Paul's saying it is 100% by faith. I'd like to... Do we have time? Let's, let's do it quickly. Go to John 3. John chapter 3. You know this story very, very well. But Jesus talking to Nicodemus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, verse 1. And it says, It came to pass, Jesus, uh, no, and the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, and for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. I always, I always like how, you know, people come and they start saying something. Jesus just cuts right to the chase. Jesus answered and said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's exactly what was, you know, the issue. And so he got right to it. Nicodemus in verse 4 says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into a mother's womb and be born? What is this second birth? What are you talking about? Jesus answers, verse 5, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water... And of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now you're going to say, what is that, water and Spirit? Well, look at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do you remember what he said about Ishmael? Ishmael was born of the flesh. Just simply a natural birth. Isaac was born supernaturally, despite nature, what was naturally impossible. And that's the picture Paul is drawing on. He says, for someone to be saved, you, you, all of us have been born of the flesh, or else you wouldn't be here. You, you were born, you have a birthday, but that's not, you know, it doesn't matter who your father or your mother was, you have to be born again. You have to be born of the Spirit. A supernatural birth, not a natural birth, not a, something you can do yourself. This is the work of the Spirit of God to birth us spiritually. So you have to have two birthdays, right? We've said this before, and it's not original with me, but if you have, if you have uh, I'll even probably mix, mix it up. If you have one birthday... If you've been born once, you'll die twice. Do you know that? That's what the Bible says. When it says in Revelation, 
uh, people die and they stand before God. They die physically. They stand before God and not being in that. Remember we saying there's a new name written down in glory? Not being written in the book of life because they haven't received Christ as their Savior. They're cast into the lake of fire. And it says this is the second death. So those who are born once will die twice. But those who are born twice will only die once. The second birth is that spiritual birth. And the only death you suffer is physical. Are you still with me? I see a few puzzled faces. Um, but, you know, this is what Paul is saying. This is why he says this story can illustrate for us something about salvation. Alright, let's try to get through the rest of it here. Back to Galatians. So he says in verse 25, this is an allegory. For these are the two covenants. The ones from Mount Sinai and gender it to bondage. That's Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And what's he talking about there? Well, that's the Old Covenant, right? You know, in your covenant is the same word really as testament. You have an Old Testament, you have a New Testament. And he says this Old Covenant, the covenant of the law, remember on here, covenant based on law, Mount Sinai, all of that, that's Hagar, that's Ishmael. That's their line. And it genders to bondage. And then, it took me a while to figure out what he says here in verse 25. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. I, I puzzled about that for a while. Answers to Jerusalem. And what does that mean? And all that. And basically what I, what I believe it means, best I could come up with, is that, uh, you can, I guess we can leave it up. Um, the best I can come up with is that, you know, he's talking about Judaism. So you go, you know, Hagar, Ishmael, they are under this old, they're the picture of the old covenant, and that's where Jerusalem still is. Judaism is still there. You know, they're still preaching the old covenant of law. But he says there's a, there's a Jerusalem which is from above, verse 26. It's free. Which mother which is the mother of Saul. And uh, talks about how verse twenty seven kind of implies that uh, Christianity will have more children than Judaism. And of course that comes from Sarah and Isaac. So does that kind of make sense? Is the, is this passage a little more clear? I hope it is. Um, he's saying this is the picture that I see Paul as he looks at this picture, this, this story in the Bible, the, the account of these two sons. And then we see in verse 27, um, oh no, we looked at it. Look at verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac. So if you're a Christian, you've been born by promise, right? Because you believe the promise of God. You trusted in not not your physical abilities, not your physical heritage. You trusted in the promise of the, of salvation through Christ. So we are spiritual children of Abraham. With the faith that Abraham had. But the children of promise were persecuted by the children of the flesh. Paul says, you know, it doesn't surprise me that we're being persecuted. 
That's what I, Ishmael did to Isaac. When Isaac was born, uh, you know, Ishmael mocked him and, and persecuted him. And of course, Hagar and Sarah, they didn't get along really well either. And Sarah said, we got to get rid of this Ishmael, cast him out. And Abraham was reluctant, of course. But God said, no, Ishmael needs to go. Because only Isaac will inherit. So there was a persecution which shouldn't come as a surprise to us. If the legalists persecute us, you know, they, they mock us, well, that's not surprising. But they are cast out. They have no inheritance. So, so then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Now again, I know this is sort of the, the theme of this entire book. But I, I do wonder, you know, if there is somebody here, because it is easy sometimes to grow up in church, um, you know, to be in church for a while, and think, you know, maybe you're not really sure if you're saved, but... But you don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to expose yourself. You know, I don't want to come out and say I'm not really a Christian because then what are people going to think? And and on and on. I, mean, I think people do this. We do this in our mind. We think, well, I'm not. You know, maybe maybe I've never really been born again. But I'm not brave enough to go forward. You know, I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to be uh, looked down on. But I want you just to understand that. Look. In the church, nobody's going to do anything but rejoice. And certainly, you don't want to remain in bondage. Right? I'll close with a little story about uh, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was probably as religious of a man as you would ever want to meet. He was a, a monk in a monastery. One biographer said, described him as his life as a long, drawn-out agony. He crept like a shadow through the cloister, the walls echoing with his dismal groanings, and all the time thinking of God as the one who can find delight in these continuous torments. And so he said, how can I please God? Martin Luther wanted to know. But, you know, the monastery basically had the philosophy that if you would deny yourself and you know and and kind of punish yourself but that was that would do it so you know what they did uh, Martin Luther got a, a they called it a hair shirt shirt made of hair because it was just uncomfortable and he had the hairiest shirt you can get I mean the most uncomfortable uh, way he could make it and when that brought him no peace he laid on a bale a, a, a bed of nails and he crawled around on his knees, just trying to somehow get God's attention. Somehow, you know, he knew that he was worthy of some punishment, and so he was going to try to do this to himself and, and hope that God would, would accept it. And he said this, Martin Luther said, I was a good monk. I kept the rules of my order so strictly that I may say that if a monk could ever 
get to heaven by monkery. I was that monk. All my brothers, my brother in the, in the monastery who knew me, would bear me out. If I kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with my vigils, my prayers, and my readings, and my other work. But God lit a candle in Martin Luther's heart. And uh, Luther said, Then I grasped that the justice of God is the, that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt, I felt myself reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. He basically came to realize that all this stuff he called monkery, all this works of the flesh, never brought him peace. Never made him feel right with God. Until he understood that salvation is by faith. If somebody's here this morning and you have never received by just simple faith, believing with all your heart trusting in what Jesus did for you, for your salvation. Then it was said in Sunday school again, today is the day of salvation. Come out from under the bondage. No longer a child of the bondwoman, but a child of the free. Let's stand.